0: Hi, welcome to ABC online. I'm Matt and I'm Josh. We got a couple of announcements for you guys this morning First off on October 30th, we have trunk or treat the way it works is we get volunteers that bring their cars trailers Whatever in to decorate as a Halloween giveaway for students and families coming through the Sunken Gardens That's gonna be from 5 p.m. To 7 p.m. Again on October 30th. You got questions on it hit up Sandy so fun One more other thing we got for you is a blood drive coming up this October 5th on a Wednesday. It's gonna be from nine to one. If you guys wanna sign up for that, you can sign up online and you get a free granola bar. That's a win, we love that. And lastly, we have our Awaken conference coming up for students November 11th through the 12th. This conference is amazing. We have about 300 plus students that come from all across the county where they get to experience an amazing speaker, host, tons of different vendors and activities um, for a full day on Saturday and the half day on Friday. Um, Again, if you haven't heard about this conference, we ask that you guys hit us up, check out our website for more details and you can sign up there this week. Hey, that's it from us. Enjoy the service, thanks for joining us. The sun was setting on a full and exhausting day. Being with Jesus was exhilarating. I literally saw with my own eyes, disease disappear from skin. The light come back in blind eyes. Paralyzed, got up and walked. Demons fled at the word of Jesus. My heart raced. We were running on adrenaline. And then Jesus spoke these words that created a deafening silence. Let the dead bury their own dead. These are hard words, Jesus. I don't understand. But he was magnetic. I was compelled, drawn to him. And so I followed. He looked toward the dock and said, let's set sail for Galdera. And so I looked to the sky, seeing that the weather was pleasant, Sailor's Delight, we called it. I agreed. And we got in the boat and began to sail east. There was a pad up front in the bow where we'd sleep after a long night of fishing. I don't think I ever got better sleep than in the bow of that boat with the Galilean waves rocking me to sleep. He was exhausted. He had taught for hours. And then he engaged with dozens, gosh, maybe hundreds of people Every single one, he looked right in the eye. He helped people that were tormented, people that were broken, that were lonely, that were left out. He saw every single one of them. And so he laid back on that pad. And as we put out the oars, the creaking sound heading out of the bay quickly put him to sleep. We weren't 300 meters offshore when this surprising Cold wind came out of nowhere. I looked at Andrew and caught eyes with him. What have we done? I looked back to the shore at the distant and now dim lights of Galilee. We were too far to turn back. We were stuck, and by then the waves were starting to build from the wind. It was dark. So immediately we dropped sail, put out the oars, and we began paddling like mad. But it was all in vain, because within minutes a swell developed bigger than I'd ever seen. Now you have to understand something about Galilean fishing boats. We build the stern narrow and the sides low. They're quick and they're maneuverable. You can get nets in and out very easily, but they're not built for weather, small and efficient, not ready to withstand what we were about to endure. The waves now being three meters easily overhead, bellowing into the boat we were going under. And I began to panic. I grabbed a bait bucket and I tossed it to the other guys and we quickly began bailing water. And I looked as I began to pray through my instinctive prayer, this prayer of Rahamim, mercy God, mercy. I looked to the bow on my left and saw him there still asleep. I was indignant. He wasn't praying. He He wasn't bucketing water. He was there asleep, and so I screamed in fear, Jesus! Jesus, wake up! I startled him, and he looked back And his eyes, caught mine. He saw the fear in my face, but there was no fear in his, only confusion. And as he began to lift himself off the pad onto his knees and eventually stand, balancing now in the bow, he raised his hands as if to call the attention of a crowd, And then he lowered them with a whisper, and the wind yielded. It was as if the waves were bowing and releasing. We sat now in quiet as the wind became warm, drifting through the Sea of Galilee with no storm in sight. Who is this man And then his words cut me right to the heart. He didn't take his eyes off the water. He simply spoke, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Who is this man? Who are you? I asked. Even the wind and the waves obey? I was stunned, still panting for breath reeling from the trauma of panic. I sat down in the boat. I fell asleep. I don't remember the rest of the night. We eventually came into port on the East Bay, and I remember waking up thinking this must be a dream. There's no way. But as I reached to step towards the dock, I looked down and my ankles now buried in a foot of water on the bottom of the boat. This was not a dream. This was very real. Who is he? What is he? And my goodness, who am I? Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. And we'll see this story play out As these fishermen, these young men following Jesus with some uncertainty, with a bit of anxiety, not sure what to think of this whole Jesus thing, jump into the boat, um, headed out for a nighttime sail across the Sea of Galilee, um, experienced something they could have never imagined. Read with me in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him. A profound story, one that maybe you have heard often or know well. But I want to sit in this moment for a minute and look at how Jesus is working. What's he doing here and what does he do similarly for us in our lives? For us to be able to put ourselves in that moment and to learn the faith of what Peter or Andrew or others, maybe Matthew or Levi, was in the boat. What were they learning? What were they experiencing and feeling? And so we step into their shoes for just a minute. And I want to remind you that they just got done seeing Jesus not only teach this profound teaching, Sermon on the Mount, but then he started to perform these miracles that they'd never seen before. Healing the blind, the lame, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. Jesus was performing these right in front of them administering his authority in teaching, his authority over disease, his authority over spirits, his authority over the body. And then he narrows the gate and he starts making comments that are really hard to discern. He taught about the hard path, the narrow gate. And then he doubled down saying, there's really no good place to sleep if you follow me. No place to lay your head. And you really don't have time to attend to family matters. Talked about that last week. Are you sure you want to follow me? Is as if Jesus was warning them. And these guys stick with it. Albeit insecure, probably uncertain. Haunted by the words that he spoke to the centurion, that there was no one in all of Jerusalem with as much faith as that Roman. Cut by the words of Jesus speaking of another's faith. They follow him. They made a decision to step off the dock and onto the boat in Galilee that night. And it didn't mean that they had all their questions about Jesus answered. It didn't mean that they knew where they were going or that they had clarity. It was a step of faith in an unsure belief that what Jesus was leading them to was better than what they could experience on shore. And so they got in the boat. Now, there's probably at least one guy that didn't get in the boat. He had this this segment here we just looked at a couple of weeks ago. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. It's likely that he whittled down the group. Some of these people chose not to get in the boat with Jesus, but others climbed in unsure and compelled and it's how he wanted it. You see, Jesus continually stepped out in front, and that's what I want to see here as we understand how he works and and what he's doing for his disciples. First, he's leading by example. He's stepping out in front. If you look back at uh, the, the beginning of the passage here, verse 23, it says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. First thing we see is that Jesus leads leads by example. He gets out in front. That's what a good leader does. And so Jesus steps out like Mark says in chapter 4, "On that day evening had come, he said to him." This is the same story in Mark's version. He said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." He gives him direction and then he gets in the boat. Jesus continually steps out in front. You see the purpose of Christ's time on earth is inhabiting this planet really was twofold. It was the redemptive work of the cross. We know that. That's the gospel. He came to this earth so that he could lay down his life as a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world and redeem his people. That's the first and foremost reason why he came. But the second reason Jesus came was actually to give us this perfect picture of a Godward life, to set an example for us as a leader, to say, this is how I want you to interact with others. This is how I want you to pray. This is how I want you to participate in the religious system. This is how I want want you to prioritize your life. This is how I want you to spend, to eat, to nap. Jesus sets an example, a path forward for us. It's as if the gospels are subtexted with this line, how to live like Jesus. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, Luke, John. The way Jesus lived and how to follow him. So he leads. steps out in front and he gets on the boat and it'll require some degree of faith it'll require that uh, we don't get all the answers before following we don't know exactly where we're going but we know he won't let us down so Jesus leads but then he waits maybe the most frustrating thing that Jesus does in all of the Gospels in his whole time here on earth is the waiting. At the most inopportune time, it says in verse 24, there was a great storm so the boat was being swamped with waves, but he was asleep. Now, I want to just remember for a quick moment of this Hypostatic union of Christ, that he is fully God and fully man, that Jesus, being man, uh, was tired and needed to sleep. Jesus, being God, was fully aware of the circumstances that were about to play out. And so he deliberately made a decision to sleep, to wait. It's just super ironic if you think about it, because he just got done saying, The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, but it didn't keep him from sleeping. He found a place. Why did he wait? Why did he sleep? Why does Jesus wait to heal Jairus' daughter? Why does he wait to raise Lazarus from the dead? Why is he waiting right now in your daily cry, your call for help, your prayer? God, help me, lead me, meet me, show me, provide for me. Why is he waiting? While the disciples are are bailing water in their desperate attempt to survive, I think they realize two things. The first is that they are not God. And the second is that they cannot control their circumstances. We, we actually gain these um, CR principles from these two concepts. That we are not God and we do not have control of our circumstances. And completely at the mercy of the wind and the waves, I think these trained fishermen likely did everything in their power to keep from capsizing. And he slept. Every one of us, I think, can relate to the wind and the waves. There's a circumstance for all of us that we look to and believe that that is our storm, our wind and waves. And what we do is the same thing as the disciples did and likely the same thing as any other human being would do. We use our ability, we use our experience, we use our talent to begin overcoming the storm. We bail water. We do everything in our own human strength and we believe at times that we're smart enough and capable enough and resourceful enough, maybe quick enough on our feet to actually overcome the storm. And yet, if Jesus were not to wait, if he were to rise and calm the storm too quickly, there's a chance that we would believe, as the disciples might believe in that boat that day, that they could have overcome the storm. But he waits to bring him to the point where they realize there is nothing that I could possibly do to change these circumstances and I'm all out of options. So he sleeps. Is it possible that your circumstances today are in the, in the midst of Jesus waiting so that he will allow for you to go long enough to release the illusion that you have control? It begs the question though, why are there storms in the first place? That's an age-old question, isn't an apologetic question. How could a good God allow bad things to happen? Why would Jesus even allow this storm to take place in the first place? Stormy seas, affliction, loneliness, injury, illness. Why? What's the purpose of that if God is truly good? I want to tell you about a 19th century pastor and theologian. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard of him before. It's said that he was the most influential pastor, influential preacher in all of England in the mid-1800s. He wrote more volumes than any other Christian has written in history in terms of contribution for theological studies. He had a church building, it was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle that seated 6,000 people. And at age 19, he took the platform and preached his first sermon there. And it's said that uh, the woman that would once become his wife, Susanna, was very unimpressed with that sermon. But the two married and they have this beautiful love story. In fact, if you go look up the relationship, there are some love letters between Charles and Susanna that, that rival any chick flick you could possibly come up with, just amazing words. And you see the beauty of this story, this love story, and you see the fruit of this man's career. And yet you realize that in the middle of that story, right around in his 30s, that Charles Spurgeon was struck with gout, had a completely debilitating sickness, and his wife then had a debilitating sickness that kept her housebound for over 15 years. They had two young twin boys, and she was stuck at home with a sickness that didn't let her get out of bed caring for her twins, and she missed many, many, many years of Charles preaching in that tabernacle. And you ask the question, God, why would you allow for that to happen with someone who's so fruitful? Imagine what fruit could have been produced if the two had been firing on all cylinders. Why would there be such a storm that would keep them from doing the work that you called them to do? And we look at that hindrance as a barrier to what we're supposed to be doing for God and his kingdom. And we ask the question, why a storm? Could it be, though, that God's definition of fruit is far different than yours? Mind, could it be that the fruit God was growing and bearing was far deeper than what we could see at the surface he was building character and that maybe even the fruit that was visible would have been limited if it weren't for the depth that was being grown below the surface are you sleeping Jesus why are you sleeping why aren't you answering me Why won't you wake up and help me bail water? I'm drowning. There may be fruit that you don't see. Perhaps God's definition looks a little different than ours. Perhaps Jesus waits in a season of pain in the storm because the fruit he's producing is far deeper than what our small minds can comprehend. And out of this season for the Spurgeons comes this beautiful quote. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon says it is a good thing to be without trouble. Do you agree with that? (laughs) Yes, it is. But it is a better thing to have trouble and to know how to get grace enough to bear it. It's good to have no trouble, but it's better to have trouble and to know the one to call on, to know the grace available to you in the midst of that trouble, to know the depth of the fruit that God is growing in you while Jesus sleeps, while he waits, and he allows for us to eliminate all other human potential resource so that we can call on his name and we cry out for him to speak and to move. I appreciate the way the King James describes this scenario, this story. It calls the storm the great tempest of the sea. For it is only in the storm of the tempest that these men begin to look beyond their skill. There's no calling a friend or reading a book to survive the throes of the tempest. But only calling on the one whose breath spoke life into existence and who holds with gravity the sea back from the land it'll be Jesus and only Jesus and so at just the right time not too soon he speaks and we praise God for him speaking in this passage it says in verse 26 he said to them why are you afraid you have little faith then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus speaks to the storm. And I'm so thankful that both Matthew and Mark and Luke, in their versions of the story, all use this word rebuke. Because it dictates the fact that Jesus had power just with his word to rebuke an inanimate object. Just like he rebuked the fever from Peter's mother-in-law. Like he rebuked the spirits. He spoke and something happened with one word. In fact, um, Mark uses the phrase, peace be still. He records that Jesus said that. Peace be still. It's incredible news because... There are fevers and there are winds and there are waves and storms or tempests in your life and in my life that we're facing or you have faced that we desperately want and need for Jesus to speak. We need to rebuke them. We need to resist them. We need to send them away the way that Jesus sent them away. And so for us to see this passage this morning, it should bring great encouragement that he has the power and the authority and the will to speak and he does. So I bring you to this passage this morning, church, to remind you to look at the words of Mark and look at the words of Matthew, peace, be still, that Jesus speaks. Yeah, he might make you wait. He might be asleep. Yeah, he might have led you somewhere that you didn't want to be, that you thought you shouldn't have gone. But now you're there in the middle of the storm and he's asleep. But I want to remind you, church, as you read through this passage, that Jesus doesn't sleep forever. He will wake up and he does speak at just the right time. Not too early and not too late. The boat did not capsize that night. He spoke. And I want to remind you as John Piper writes that he has all the authority to speak. Listen to what he says. Waves are caused by wind, which is created by the expanding and contracting effects of heat and cold. That cold should contract things and heat should expand things was Christ's idea. These laws are not unlike the ones that cause a fever. These two, Jesus rules with a word. His rebuke carries not only the will, but the force that reverses the effect of the physical laws. That the reason there was wind and waves in the first place was Jesus's idea that there would be hot and cold air combining and that would create wind and the wind would blow over the water and the wind would create waves. That was God's idea. And so when he speaks a word of rebuke to the wind and the waves, it's a word that's spoken over the very thing that he created and spoke into existence centuries ago he leads he may wait but he will speak and then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm so thankful for the great calm because again it speaks of a hopeful season beyond the storm. Now, I always want to be careful when we come up against a passage like this and realize I want to remind you that not every passage in scripture is prescribing a promise for you and for me. For in other words, what we see in the gospel here, a lot of what we see in the gospel is describing how Jesus works, how God works, what he cares about, what's most important to him, and we get to see his character. We get to learn of of the things that he values. We allow for this truth about who Jesus was, the things he said and did, to shape our minds and hearts and form in us an understanding of the character of God and the power that God has. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus will always do the same for your life. Every single story different. Everybody's timing different. Every situation unique. And so we don't see this prescribed promise. And I wouldn't Bear to tell you this morning that you would stand before God and say, you need to speak, and you'd scream over the noise of the wind and the waves in your storm, and Jesus would in fact wake up and speak calm over the storm. That's not my business. That's between you and God on whether or not that's gonna happen and when it'll happen. I won't promise that he'll speak a great calm over your situation because we know from history and we look through the rest of the Bible and the epistles and learn that there are people. That never saw a calm to their storm in their lifetime on this earth. But what I will do is point you to a true story with real people, a real life example of a painful storm where there were some men struggling to survive, barely hanging on, in fear of their life. And I'll read you the end of that story because it sits as a strong reminder of the character and the consistency and faithfulness of God, and I'll show you how they responded. Listen to what it says. And he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled. They marveled. See, in their story, there was a great calm, which means he's not only capable, but he's willing. In their story, he spoke, which means he not only has the authority, but also the ability. In their story, they marveled at the power and the authority and the willingness of Jesus to calm the, story, the storm. Your story might turn out different than theirs, but I'm here to tell you that he leads and he waits and he speaks and he's capable and he's willing to calm the storm. And so we hold on for hope in the midst of a storm, believing that God can and will speak, that he's willing and he's able. And so when we call out to him and we say, Jesus, I need you to wake up. I need you to come too. I need you to step in. I need you to speak into my situation. There's a chance that he might wait longer. And yet I want you to believe and I want you to see that there is an end to the story that brings a calm and that calm might come on the other side of eternity or on this side of eternity, but it doesn't change the fact and the reality that he's able and he's willing. So Jesus leads, he leads the disciples. We see it again and again. In fact, it's gonna happen here in a few minutes or a few weeks as we kinda continue on in the the passage. He's gonna lead them, show them the way. And there are times when he's strategically and intentionally going to wait. And that'll be frustrating to them. And it might be frustrating to you. Certainly has been for me. And at some point, Jesus is going to speak. The Bible says that he speaks a better word on our behalf. That at some point, when we stand before the throne of God, convicted as sinners, He's going to speak. He's going to speak a better word. He's going to defend you by his own righteousness and say, this one's mine. This storm is done. This debt is settled. This pain is gone. And there will be a great calm. Pray with me for the faith and the courage to continue listening. Father, I'm acknowledging before you, and I'm asking, Lord, that you would help everyone who's hearing this message this morning to acknowledge before you, God, that there are frustrating seasons of waiting, discouraging moments when I wish you would speak. I wish you'd move, and I wish I could see you working. But I'm also gonna acknowledge the fact that you continually prove yourself again and again to be faithful and that you do, in fact, speak. And so I thank you for this story. Thank you for the the words that are here. There's enough description for us to see the desperation of these men believing that their lives are truly at risk and that this may be the end for them. And they cry out to you and yet you wait. Wait for long enough for them to exhaust all their resources. You wait. And so I'm just owning that before you, God, I'm I'm acknowledging that you may be waiting for us to exhaust our resources to come all the way to the end. And yet I'm asking, Lord, don't make us wait too long. God, don't make us wait too long. But would you speak? And we've seen you speak we've heard you speak and we see evidence of it in scripture that your word carries such power and such authority over even the wind and the waves that when you speak things change so i'm gonna hang my hat on that i'm gonna rest in that stand firm in that god that when you speak things change and you promised you will so I'm trusting and believing. And for every person that's hearing this message this morning, I ask for you to grow and develop their faith in believing that you will speak, that you are able and that you're willing. And there will be a great calm. At some point in this lifetime or the next, there will be a great calm. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.